My name is Jason Dubray, and this is the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. Each week, I'm going to give away one movie from my physical movie collection. Please enjoy this week's episode. week's episode of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show, episode number one, Loss of Innocence. My guest, Sage Dent, and I are going to talk about six films that deal with a transition from childhood into adulthood. There will be spoilers. Uh, there may be some coarse language. We are going to review all six films. At the end, Sage will award 60 points among the six films, and I will award my 60 points. Whichever movie gets the lowest number of points is a movie I then have to remove from my film collection. Sage will then get to decide what happens to that movie. Please enjoy this week's episode. Okay, welcome to my very first episode, and my very first guest is Sage Dent. So, Sage and I have known each other for a couple of years now, and we met pretty much through our mutual friend, Tom Ratzlaff. Sounds like your name dropping, but like... <laughs> yeah, yeah so people in the way like, oh yeah, I know Tom Ratzlaff. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> He's a friend of mine, you'll... <laughs> He's still doing a show at some point. But Sage came in and saved a play I was I was working on uh, when uh, somebody dropped out very, very late in the process. Uh, you pretty much learned your lines in like the first day. And, and ironically, it was the first one to learn. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Before me as well. I was acting yeah. in the show. So, yeah. And since then, we've been, hesitate to say, friends. No. 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 I keep trying. You Acquaintances at best. Acquaintances <laughs> at best. Anyway, you were you were when I came up with the idea of of this podcast, you were the first person to respond and you wanted episode number one. And I sent you like like nine episodes to choose from. Ish. Ish somewhere. Uh, so you you picked uh, this one called Loss of Innocence. So why did you pick that? <laughs> partially because I had seen the most films out of the category. Yeah. Um, and partially because I think that it's an interesting topic. Although I, and there are quite a few films that I would have liked to see in it, to be honest. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of films that I would be like, no, these are lots of business films. Kind of like thing. other other movies. Yeah. Like, that aren't in the category. But I do, mm -hmm. like, I think the category is pretty innocent, like, interesting. And I also think that, like... The films in it are interesting depictions of loss of innocence because they're not really like there's some strong variations even though they're all kind of the same thing. Um, like because there's kind of a difference between some of them are people where it's like they're basically adults losing their sense of innocence because maybe they've been shielded or whatever. Yeah. And then there's also ones where it's like no, these are like children. Yes. Thing, Le legit children. You yeah. know, young like, children. Very, like, under the age of 12 kind of children. Mm -hmm. Like, like or isn't... We, we have Lolita in here, but yeah. there's one movie where the characters are younger than Lolita. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's crazy. Now, one of the things I, I want to say is I, I'm, I'm planning sequel yeah. themes, and maybe, I'm not sure, like, the limitation is these are all movies that I physically own. 
So there might be movies that I don't physically own that would work yeah. even better in this category, and that's just uh, just how it goes there. Was there any one movie that you really were were, were excited about talking? Well, I mean, about? I love Black Swan. Black Swan. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that's like a beautiful depiction of art and dance and the way they tell the story. I think is a really like unique way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's that's one where that loss of innocence. It's an older yeah. character yet. When we yeah, first encounter her, she is immature. Yeah, because she's been shielded like her entire life, so she ends up being like a very like immature woman. Even though she's like, how old is she supposed to be in the film? Like she's a uh, older. I think she'd be in her twenties. Yeah, because sure. she yeah. would be older than that because she's in like a ballet academy, and that's usually yeah. a younger demographic. But she's definitely like I think she's around like twenty-one to twenty-three kind of age range. I think so. Yeah. yeah. But in, in many ways, she, she is stuck. And we'll talk about that when we review it, yeah. for sure. Um, so I'm just going to mention the, the movies that we are going to talk about. Um, our first one is a really, really interesting, brutal movie uh, from Japan called Battle Royale. Uh, then we have Clint Eastwood's Mystic River, a very uh, successful Oscar-winning film. Another Oscar-winning film uh, has a great reputation. Cameron Crowe is almost famous. We are going to be reviewing the director's cut, which is called Untitled, interestingly enough. And uh, then we have Rob Reiner's Stand By Me, based on a novella by Stephen King. Stephen King will be mentioned a whole lot in this, over the years in this podcast. I have a lot of his movies. I also have a lot of his books. Uh, then we have Stanley Kubrick's uh, controversial at the time, controversial now, still relevant, uh, his take on Lolita. And we're going to end off with uh, the movie you just mentioned, Black Swan, directed by Darren Aronofsky, a very interesting filmmaker as well. Anything else you want to say before we get into reviewing these bad boys? Okay, so there was this really, really popular book series called Hunger Games uh, that one or two people may have heard of. Um, and about the time that this was you know, popular, right? I had uh, one of my high school students mention Battle Royale and how much better Battle Royale is than Hunger Games. Yeah. And it, it, I believe it came from a book or a graphic novel as well, originally. I think so. Yeah. And, uh, and, and so then I, I saw a cheap Blu-ray copy of this at Walmart, and I thought, well... Wait, you, know, you haven't seen it? I hadn't seen it in theaters or anything like that. No, it would be amazing to see it in, in theaters, yeah. I would think. And so I came to it a little bit late, but it had a huge impact on me. Um, 
uh, my, my friend uh, Larry Parsons and I, I go on his show Rank and Review yeah. uh, and recently him and uh, an, another uh, friend of mine Lee Beckman and I we were reviewing the top horror movies of uh, the first 10 years of the 2000s and I put Battle Royale on my list one of the questions is is it a horror movie as well as an action movie or not but to me it is absolutely spectacular so just getting to the plot in this, uh, it's pretty much in kind of a future world, or maybe it's a little bit too close to the present, where um, financially things are not going well in the world, and students are no longer attending school, or they, when they're at the school, they are not listening to teachers, to the point where teachers are being uh, attacked brutally in the hallways. And so the government comes up with this great solution, this thing called Battle Royale, and they would randomly select a middle school class and put the entire grade, kidnap them basically, put them on an island, uh, and then they all have to kill each other within 48 hours, and uh, whoever survives uh, gets to live. And it's a big, it's a big event every year. And so that's, that's the premise here, and we do uh, indeed find out, spoilers, that a former teacher who taught this particular group uh, is very much behind uh, this battle royale concept. Uh, it starts off like, really, we're never going to kill each other among some of these kids, and within two minutes, they have weapons and they are attacking each other in the most spectacular, brutal manner possible. This movie has some great kills, if that is the entertainment you're looking for. So uh, I, I really, really like this. It actually grows in my esteem every time I see it. But what do you think of Battle Royale? I think it's an interesting film. The weird thing is like the first time I saw it, because like all my friends at the time were hyping it up, because you know, they're all like, when did this film come out? Like came out early 2000s. I think it was 2000, exactly. Yeah, it came yeah. out in 2000. Yeah. Um, and so, like, most of my friends started seeing it kind of, like, at a younger age kind of thing. So everyone around me was, like, hyping it up to be this, like, oh, it's, like, the most gruesome, like, brutal film you'll ever see. Mm-hmm. There's, like, no film as violent as it. It's, like, so intense. And then I saw it, and I was, like, don't get me wrong, it's an insanely violent film, but mm-hmm. it was, like, so underwhelming, the violence, for the hype that I had behind it. And I feel like at that point I had already seen some, like, gory, violent films yeah, kind of thing. And that's the difference. And I think that's why I appreciate this film more, is that their violence isn't just about the gore factor. Yeah. Like, I think that's one of the things the film does really well, is that it doesn't try and make the violence this, like, grotesque, gory, like, everybody's, like, puking in the audience kind of film. It makes it, like... Like, I feel like for the amount of violence it has, they do a realistic job of capturing the violence for the situation that they're putting their mm-hmm. characters in. It's a heightened situation. It's... Yeah. And it's the idea of, like, okay, like, what did the film set out to do and how well did they achieve that kind of thing? And yep. I feel like for what they set out to do, they did a perfect job, of, or near-perfect job of near achieving perfect. it. Yeah. yeah, like, it's a very interesting depiction, and I think it's interesting to show these children in a situation because it's kind of like in a way you could compare it almost to like Lord of the Flies 
very much. Only Lord of the Flies wasn't like an intentional situation that no. the kids are put in. Yeah. But for what the kids kind of like end up doing, it's like this is the sped up forced version of that. Yeah. Kind of thing. Those like if you're looking at that, it was a very gradual build kind of thing, and these kids like were really forced into a bad situation, but nobody intentionally did it. Whereas in Battle Royale, it's like these adults are going, no, you should do this. This is a good mm -hmm. idea. This is the best solution. It is government sponsored. Yeah, um, and I think it's, it's interesting because like, like not to get overly political about it. <laughs> That's fine. Go but to get overly political about it, um, I could see a government doing this. Only let's be real, it wouldn't be white kids being put into the situation. You know, I could see a really fucked up government doing it with every kid that wasn't white, to be wow. honest. I mean, couldn't you? Well, and like, it's where this is sad that these kids aren't white. But yeah, and <laughs> although the government, the government is, is yeah. mainly run by like white people kind yeah. of thing. But it's an interesting idea because I think like if you, I was trying to think of it as happening in reality, like mm -hmm. how I would see this playing out where we got to this outcome in reality, that's kind of how I would see it playing out. I mean, it'd be like some crazy idea, like a government suggesting that teachers should uh, have handguns as part yeah, of their like job. Yeah, what's up with that? Right. That would just be absolutely ludicrous, so, right? <laughs> this teacher who really like orchestrates this whole thing, this yeah. whole game, and uh, he's the one who also announces all the kids' names as they have died, yeah. and these kill zones where if the, if the kids are in there, they will explode. I think if this teacher had a handgun, yeah. Um, All those kids would already be dead. They, they, they would have been dead a long fast. time ago. And when I when I meant, talked about this on, on this other podcast, uh, two of the three of us are teachers. Yeah. And we're kind of laughing at the fact that, you know, there are points when it's a very stressful job. And as much as we love it, I mean, there are days when people are just, everybody is upset at each other. Oh, yeah. And this feels like some sort of like an awful, awful revenge on these middle school kids. And, you know, there's so much going on with grade seven and eight yeah. children. And they are children. And, I mean, that's one of the things that's really strikes me about this is how young they look. Yeah. We get the backstory for some characters. To me, this might be a little bit of a flaw. But you tell me if this is a flaw or not. There's so many of them, uh, and so many of these stories, and perhaps if I was more familiar with the source material, it might be a little bit easier to, to kind of figure out different people's stories. But there were points where I would get the kids mixed up a bit. The ones that stick out in my mind are, of course, there's a little bit of a love story with this one boy, yeah. and he sounds like he's a popular boy, like half the girls are, are interested in him. And this other girl who we're, we're kind of cheering for. And she has a bit of a, a strange backstory with this teacher. Um, yeah. uh, and then we, we have these older students who we later find out have survived a battle royale and have volunteered to go get back into it. The one has just likes to kill people, I think. Oh, yeah. uh, and the other person is trying to disrupt the system um, and kind of get revenge on those who have created it and there's a few other characters here there's a, a horrible sequence where um this this girl kills this boy uh because it gets to this point where she just is is ready to 
kill anybody who comes behind her. And this this boy who's always had been, you know, been in love with her, and he's never had the courage to say it until he's like being killed by her and is bleeding and dying. And he was running up to try to uh, to help her survive. Yeah. And then she gets killed by this this one uh, this one kid. She her backstory is that she killed a pedophile when she was uh, like really really little. And she's kind of outside of the popularity group, and she's realized she can only depend on herself. So she takes to this game really well. And she takes on the sociopathic older boy in this, this battle. And somehow, you, for whatever reason, I end up cheering for, for that character quite a bit too. But then there's all these other kids where I just don't, I can't place them. And it's, I have trouble. Uh, because there's so much killing after a while caring about some of these deaths mm-hmm. it's just okay well we're getting we're getting down to the last 10 or something that's what it yeah. feels like for me what's weird is like i almost wish they hadn't given you backstory for any of the characters oh just you just yeah saw it. yeah yeah because i feel like going into it you're giving backstory for some of the characters and it feels and i feel like this is something movies do a lot and i dislike it where they choose which characters you're getting backstory mm-hmm. for which ones you're not and it one it almost makes me personally want to care for the characters a little less because mm. it feels like i'm trying to be forced to care for them but i also feel like it just sets you up where you're like, oh, okay, I'm supposed to care for this character, so they'll at least last a fair amount of the way through mm-hmm. the movie. So there's no stakes when they're attacked early on. Like, yeah. The other person is going to die yeah. in the scene because we're half an hour in, 45 minutes in, unless they're really, really yeah, going to mess like, with our minds and kill some a main character off early. Yeah, they're not going to do that. For the most part, like within the first, like, because when does the first killing start? It starts really early in the oh, film. Oh, right it's away. Like, right yeah. away, I think there's some kid who walks out of uh, that fake yeah, classroom like and gets it like uh, an arrow through the heart yeah. or something right away. And, and I feel like if they hadn't added backstory for any of the characters, because I feel like one, like, I have a feeling like, I don't know if there was, I can't remember if it was a novel or a graphic novel. I think or, it was a graphic novel. Yeah, like, I, I feel that, like that feel. probably did a better job of explaining it, but obviously they have the time constraints of a film, which is fair. But I feel like then they probably gave a bit more backstory for all of the characters at that point. So you were kind of like, chose who you were invested in. But I feel like it kind of took away a little bit of the suspense. Because mm-hmm. I knew, like, automatically, the little love story, I'm like, they're yeah. going to make it a long way through. And it was almost disappointing that they did. For a film that was taking so many risks in what they were depicting, I'm like, I think it would have been way more interesting if they had gone, fuck this kid right from the start. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. And killed him off. And then yeah. completely changed your focus. To me, that would have been way more interesting. Because the whole dynamic changes when one of the, the popular kids get killed. Yeah. Um, it, it was just listed as a novel <clears throat> by oh. Kushan Takami. Cool. Okay, I do apologize for my pronunciation. Uh, but it's not listed as a graphic novel. So, like, that's honestly like my main flaw with mm-hmm. the film. Is the way that like you get an idea from the start who's at least going to last the majority of the film. One other thing, and it bothered me a little bit more this time, is when we get past the climax, it's a very convoluted bit of business that happens with some characters who look like they get killed, and then they aren't killed, and this happens two or three times, 
And then the story pretty much ends. And then we're treated to three or four requiems, uh, which I don't think add anything. It just feels like that could all be cut out. And we, we, we got the story here. We're done with the story. We don't need more. So... Well, like, what is the piece of advice that you're, like, I feel like most filmmakers are kind of given? It's, like, start your... Start the film before after the beginning of the story and end it before the end of the story. Mm-hmm. Give people, like, a chunk yeah. kind of thing. And I feel like, okay, sometimes you might need to start it at the very beginning, otherwise nothing's going to make sense. And I feel like this is one of those films where they did, like, they gave you enough background and they started it early enough that it's like, okay, this makes sense kind of thing. But I feel like they should have ended it earlier than they did. Perhaps. Because otherwise I feel like it just, like... I would have. Th- I feel like I would be thinking about this film a lot more if they ended it right at like the end without giving all the little like extras kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I would have been maybe. I would have stayed more invested in the characters. We already had the flashback with the girl having ice cream with the teacher. This is after he's no longer a teacher and he'd been attacked by a student and kind of saying you were my favorite student. Um, and I don't know Which if they felt like they need to show it is a weird bit maybe it's where it was in the film I think it was an interesting choice to like mm-hmm. cut these in, like moments of violence in with like these kind of moments of calm and like these backstories yeah. I think that's an interesting choice but like when that one happened I felt like I was watching this film and then suddenly I was like wait what it, it kind of take <laughs> you, it takes you out of the movie yeah. the Requiem tries to add a bit more context to it and I, I don't I don't know why that's necessary the, the main reason it exists, I think, is to set up the fact that the teacher has kind of rigged this so that that student will be surviving pretty close to the end. If not, you know, he comes out when it's raining and gives her an umbrella and says, oh, don't get a cold, which is kind of uh, being a little bit uh, ironic about things. Like, the cold is the least of her problems <laughs> <laughs> with the, uh, the psychopaths that are out there. I kind of like the that subplot with the kids who are hacking into the system and yeah, they shut that, that down. I wish I'd had more of that. Yeah. But then, of course... But it felt like the love story was just... And I feel like a lot of films do this. They have to have that. We have seen enough love stories. Nobody gives... <laughs> like, nobody cares about them anymore. No. Like, no. a love story to me, like, you know when you see a trailer for a film? Mm-hmm. And it's like, going about a film, and you're like, oh, this could be interesting. And then it's like he turns and she walks in and it's like this moment and you're just like oh okay i don't care about this film anymore Mm -hmm. like i don't have an interest in seeing it like i feel like too many films it's it's trying to reach another demographic i think it's like i i hate to use generalizations but okay battle royale oh this could be a violent action movie uh you know let's like let's get these guys out there oh but we have to have something for the women so we have to have a romance at the center of this which a lot of women I talk to like cut that out. Yeah, I, I also know lots of women who want a love story over there, oh, yeah. but, but or like love romantic comedies. But you know, if I want to go see a romantic comedy, if I want to go see a love story, that's what I'm going to go see. Yeah. If I'm watching a violent film, I don't want a love story within that. Yeah. You know, yeah. like it just I'm like, so what? What I feel like it's one of those things where they had a film that was pretty edgy for its time mm-hmm. dealt with some very interesting um with a very interesting topic and i feel like they were kind of trying to sugarcoat it a bit, a bit. like they were like, like okay, less we'll add the fact that the teacher does really care about this mm-hmm. one girl and we'll add the fact that there's like this love story so that's kind of sweet but like 
Also, there's just this guy who like has these two big guns and just wants to kill everyone. Yeah, you know, and that's an interesting character. Had some pacing issues almost. Yeah, yeah. Like, and that's because, like, don't get me wrong, I love the film and I think it's interesting, but I did find the pacing kind of clunky at times. Sometimes it was really good, Mm -hmm. and sometimes the moments between the violence and the like moments of almost like what you could call peace for what they're getting mm-hmm. in this were really good but I felt like like the scene where he like visits the girl and you find out like in the middle of the film kind of that she was going that he wants her to survive and that she was his yeah. favorite student why not put that at the very end why not like at the moment lines? that it happens it's like oh okay like at the same time as reading all these revelations about yeah like I would say like for something like that it would be more interesting to me at least if you get all the characters you have this horribly violent moment you have these moments where you don't understand why is he giving her this umbrella like mm-hmm. why are these things happening it's why just weird it's weird stuff yeah and yeah. then only at the end explaining like, oh explain that makes that sense that's through the yeah. film it kind of like takes the edge off and you're like oh okay so she'll she'll be fine for a while at least yeah. like maybe they'll put a twist on it and she won't survive till the end but i feel like at least now audiences are really good at kind of predicting twist endings pretty much yeah yeah but this one was so convoluted in many ways i'm not sure anybody could predict it because there was so much no but i felt like it almost put people like made like at least when i was watching it i was kind of go gonna go like like anytime i was watching i was like okay maybe the twist ending is this maybe it's that where i like in my head i kept on being like what's the twist ending gonna be and that almost took me away from it so you're you're thinking about it instead of like being in the moment with the film yeah i i think the thing i will defend or i don't know if i'll defend i'll I'll try to explain. Like, I, I've talked to some people who've seen this movie and they find it absolutely exhausting. You know, very exhausting. So I wonder if some of these flashbacks were put in just recognizing a lot of audience members just will not be able to take yeah. solid 80 minutes of just these kids killing each other. And it's just these little moments to just, you know, take a deep breath. But you're right. Where they are placed maybe needed a little bit more thought. And it might go back to the source material. But yeah, so we're purely talking from the point of view of watching the film, not having read the source material. Uh, a shout out, I think I do need to do a shout out to this director though. Yeah. Um, Kinji Fukasaki, Saku. It's a very well directed movie by somebody in their 70s. It moves at such a, it's like the pace of a, you know, a 20, 20 year old filmmaker um, uh, dealing with, you know, most of the actors are quite young. So... Um, very, very impressive film, but it's not a perfect film and I haven't encountered a perfect film yet. No, but I do think that like maybe part of it, like his directing and why it's so good is because he's had so much experience beforehand that it's almost like, I feel like another way to look at the film is like from his perspective of reflecting on what it's like to be that age Mm -hmm. and how like, you know, as much as I don't agree with him. Mm-hmm. love story and I enjoy the love story mm-hmm. I do think it's interesting to add the element of being that age and all the emotions you're feeling it's mm-hmm. an interesting way of doing it and it's all there Yeah. the other thing might be he's looking at the world going the world's going to hell so <laughs> I have to do a movie about <laughs> a possible a possible solution to the problems good enough on Battle Royale Again, I recommend this, and oh, if yeah. you love action and don't be don't be afraid of the fact that it's a non English language film because it is so visual, 
you will forget about the the subtitles and also like even though if you're somebody who doesn't like violent film because i'm not necessarily the biggest film fan of violence in a film unless it's necessary Mm -hmm. this film makes the violence worth witnessing because of the fact that it's such a necessary tool to show what the film is trying to show it works. Hey, Divine. What you looking at? The old neighborhood. There are places that make us who we are. Save! I used to play on this street when I was a kid. Really? Moments that give us hope. Do not make her laugh. Where have you been? Feelings that make us question our beliefs. Fears that trigger our darkest emotions. It's my daughter's car. He sent my daughter in there! He sent my daughter in there! Oh, God! (laughs) Okay, so it's back in the year 2003, and I am fully on board with the idea that the great Western and action star Clint Eastwood is actually one hell of a director. And he has this movie coming out in the fall, which is total Oscar bait called Mystic River. And it's a story story that's set in Boston at a time when uh, just the difference between the Canadian and American dollar, uh, a lot of uh, American set stories were being filmed in Canada. Clint Eastwood stood up and, and he'd earned a lot of... Uh, uh, Grace with Warner Brothers and said this is a Boston story it has to be filmed in Boston and they filmed on location uh, in South Boston and the cast that he as- assembled for this were some of the most exciting and still to this day some of the most exciting actors you could ever imagine so I am pumped to see this movie I'm watching the beginning of this and there's a scene that uh, more than once when I've seen it has brought me to tears by one of the great actors. And then I get to the third act and there's a real tone shift. And we get to the last scenes of this movie and I am so angry when we fade to black and the credits come that I am like, I am furious with this movie and I stayed furious for a long time. I am less furious now, but I still am trying to reconcile a few things. And I think part of it, we were talking about with Battle Royale, the source material, and we have some questions with the source material. This was based on a novel by a guy named Dennis Lehane, uh, who writes, you know, Boston based, uh, Stories. Uh, Gone Baby Gone was turned into a movie that was based on one of his books. Um, the uh, Sh- Shutter Island, which uh, Scorsese film with uh, DiCaprio. Uh, there's another one called The Drop that was um, the last film. Um, I think the last film as far as a release date that James Gandolfini was in. He deals with very dark subject matter, but he'll often have a bit of a plot twist. And sometimes when that's brought to film, I have a lot of trouble with it. I think I had less trouble with this than Gone Baby Gone, which would be a conversation for another day. 
But where I stand is I feel like why I was so upset is I felt like Mystic River could have been like one of the greatest movies I have ever seen based on the first two acts. And because of what happens in the third act, I can call it a very good movie with great, great performances. So I'm going to sound like I don't like it as we talk about it, but I do like it and I have written down in my notes mostly positives about this movie and how it's made, yet I'm still very, very frustrated by it. Yeah. So I'm interested in your take on Mystic River and maybe you haven't had that, didn't have that dramatic no. an experience So here's it. the thing. Yeah. I actually somehow had not heard of this film. Mm -hmm. You know, it's one of those things where you feel like you know, you've seen all of these films and you could watch like 80,000 like amazing high quality films and still have not even scratched the surface, yeah, you know? So like, much. It's one of those things. It's exhausting. Um, I watched it last night. Yeah. Uh, and afterwards it was really funny because I was watching it with Connor and he just goes after it. He goes, well, Connor is the, the boyfriend, I yes. should say, just, he just for goes, context's sake. Well, that's a lighthearted film. <laughs> it's all very cheery yes no other comment on the entire film no comment on the <laughs> acting just a sarcastic that, remark about the like but, the like heaviness of the film that that but that is so true and i think there will be a lot of people that if you're listening to this like this this is you're probably gonna want to watch something uh nice and light or spend time with a cute puppy or something yeah. after this to feel better about the world it is a heavy movie. Uh, I'll get into the plot for a moment. <laughs> so, to give you an idea of how heavy it is, we get to start off with these uh, three boys. Remember the, uh, the theme is loss of innocence. Yes. Three boys in um, a working class neighborhood in Boston, and they're playing in the streets, and they notice there's some wet cement. So as a lot of boys do, whether they should or not, they start writing their names in the cement. At that moment, it appears that uh, in a plane, car there's a police officer who comes out and gives these boys a hard time notices one of the boys is not that intimidated another boy is just kind of in between and there's this other boy who is very scared and very apologetic and they take that boy into their car and said okay we have to go take you to see your mom and you might be under arrest something like that did you spot the fact that there's a second person in the car yes. yeah and um, the second person in the car uh, is not so subtle in the suggestion that that second person in the car is a priest. And what happens is this boy gets kidnapped and goes missing. He goes missing for four days and he escapes. But during that four days, he has been sexually assaulted by these men who they never find. Then we flash forward to the adult version of these boys, played by three incredible actors. Uh, one is, uh, the, the victim is played by Tim Robbins. In, Tim Robbins has been good in a lot of things. I might argue this is his best performance. Uh, and he has a lot of trouble working through his life. He is married, he has a son, um, but he, it is very, very difficult. He is one of the most affected people that you would ever come across in life. 
Kevin Bacon is uh, is one of the boys, and he has become uh, a detective. And the third is Sean Penn, who is the tough kid who becomes uh, this man who is very well respected in the neighborhood. He has a daughter from a previous marriage, and he also has this young family. And when we get the uh, kind of the, the contemporary part of the story. It's uh, one of his younger daughter's uh, baptisms. But at the same time, his, his daughter has gone missing. And shortly thereafter, her body is found. Kind of a, it's a drainage ditch. Yeah, it's like in the woods. Kind of in, kind yeah. Of like her it's car outside, was parked, yeah. and then her car was parked, the but there was, there was nobody there. They find her body later. And uh, lucky Kevin Bacon, uh, and his partner, played by Lawrence Fishburne, uh, they're the ones who, who get this case. And Bacon already figures out whose kid this is, and he knows there's going to be trouble. In there are uh, the wives. So Tim Robbins' wife is played by a, an exceptional actor named Marcia Gay Harden. Her actions actually have a great consequences in this story. And uh, Sean Penn's wife is played by Laura Linney. And the beginning of this is is just so dark. It is heartbreaking when Penn kind of breaks in and he he sees his daughter's body in the police and it's taking a million people to hold him back. It is an operatic moment. It is very well directed by by Clint Eastwood. And then we have these scenes of a funeral and there's this party. There's a lot of stuff happening in this party, but. The very first time we have a scene with Sean Penn and Tim Robbins is Sean Penn is outside. Tim Robbins is uh, having a cigarette, which is interesting because in an earlier scene, he, he tells some people that he doesn't smoke. And there's this scene where they are not on really the same plane. And Sean Penn delivers just one of the most heartbreaking monologues. And that's the thing that, that breaks me up every time. And to see this like macho male actor and the character who is a strong presence just just lose it and he's talking about like feeling like his daughter as a little girl is there and that they would survived all the stuff together and then we look at Tim Robbins and he's just do you want me to leave and Sean Penn said could you just stay for a moment you know and he's getting no yeah. he, he, he just cannot you know connect with this father who's mourning. As the plot goes to, keeps going on, and I know this is very long and elaborate, uh, there are great suspicions about Tim Robbins because the night that this disappearance happened, he shows up at his house. He's got blood on his hands and he, claimed he claims he was mugged, but he doesn't want to involve the police or anything. His wife starts to become more and more suspicious to the point where she starts to become quite scared of him. What are your thoughts? I love the script for the film. Mm -hmm. I actually think that the very heavy subject matter that they're dealing with is very fascinating. I think a film that is willing to deal with the subject matter of young boys being sexually abused, mm -hmm. it's a subject matter people don't like to talk about. I also want to discuss with you the way that something like Mystic River handles it versus the way that Lolita handles it. Okay, yeah. In the sense It'll be of interesting like, to compare them, yeah. Yeah, even though, yes, they're very different films, yeah. but the idea of a young girl being sexually abused versus a young boy, boy being sexually yes. abused and the way that, like, it's handled and looked at. 
Um, I think the film does a very, it's very interesting the way that it handles the idea of how it affects someone after and the way it affects his friends after and just, it's a very interesting film. I don't like Clint Eastwood's directing of it. You, you don't like his direction? No. I, it took me out of the film. There were these amazing moments and then the way the camera was panning and just the way the scenes were changing, it like threw me off so much. I don't like the way he directed it. So do you think that like the chaos of the scene with the body, would that be an example of it? Like the camera kind of does this bird's eye view of the neighborhood and then that, that music score comes in. Is that kind I'm of what trying, you're talking I'm about? I'm trying to think of like a specific example of it. Mm -hmm. I will say I did like the way that part of the scene almost seemed like it was being filmed by a helicopter. Yeah. Kind of thing. I thought that was interesting. I think it was... Like, honestly, the scene that sticks in my head the most that to me did this, that, like, um, it was one of the last scenes, so, of course, it stuck yep. out in my head the most, yep. was the way you have the parade going, and then it shows oh, the, yes. like, part in the pavement, and then it goes to the river. I saw that, and I was like, what the fuck was that? What were those shot choices? What was that transition choice? It seemed so, like, just not... Like, it seemed like they were going to end it at the parade, and then they were like, oh, oh, we need to cut back to the pavement. Pavement, quick. Throw that mm -hmm. in. Okay. Uh, oh, it's a, it's named Mr. River. Throw in the shot of the river. Go, go, go. Kind of thing. Like, it just seemed like it could have been done in such a smooth way. Because the parade's happening on the same street, right? Mm -hmm. Why not have the camera just pan to the spot in the pavement? Why do you need to cut the shot, add the other shot, and then cut it again? Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't like the way... I think it was mostly how it was shot. I didn't like it. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. what threw me off the most about the film. And maybe part of it's the fact... I mean, part of me while I was watching it was like, well, it was shot in 2003. But I've seen other films that were shot at the same time that I thought were, like, done in a way better way. Mm -hmm. Like, that's really what threw me off. So it was editing and shot choices? Yeah. Yeah. And how, how did you feel? Because I was, I was just trying to find the name here of, of our cinematographer. Because I... I really like the the cinematography and the use of of shadow and light. Yeah. That's quite effective. And I think that visually where, where Eastwood's hand is in it and and is a bit better than the, the type of uh, sequence you're describing. I, I get in such a, a blind rage about that parade scene and the story and what happens to particularly Marsha Gay Harden's character in that scene that I, I am I'm so stuck on what's going on with the characters that I've never kind of done a shot-by-shot -shot examination of that because I'm just look, looking at the outrage of, of what has happened to her and whether like the consequences of her actions fit how she gets treated at the end but also the the morality and maybe I'm taking the scene wrong but we have Kevin Bacon I'm sorry, I'm going off on a different tangent about this, but we have Kevin Bacon uh, with his wife. Like, part of his dysfunction or whatever as an adult is he's had this separation from his wife and he refuses to apologize for whatever this thing is. It's a really minor thing, but things work out really well for him and his wife and he has this new young baby and, uh, and he's across from his parade looking at Sean Penn who has his family all together while Marsha Gay Harden's like running around like crazy in the streets trying to see her son and her son is sad because you know spoilers folks uh, his, his father is not there at the parade um, it looks like Kevin Bacon's character is conspiring with Sean Penn's character 
and they both know what has happened. And I just have trouble believing that Kevin Bacon's character is that cold-blooded. See, I interpreted that scene so differently. Did you think it's like, I'm gunning for you? That, or, or what did you take from that? Because I'm happy to be proved wrong here. Because that everything from the point that we start to see Sean Penn turn into this giant mafioso gangster character... For the rest of the film, I just have great trouble with what happens and all of this, this sympathy that I have for him, and I still think it's a great performance. He won the Academy Award over, a lot of people wanted Bill Murray to win for Lost in Translation, but I was on Sean Penn's team to win the Oscar and I'm so happy he did from that. So I don't, this, this is not about Sean Penn, he served the character. But story-wise, yeah, going from the, where he started to turn into like this Robert De Niro type of mafioso boss right till the end of the film i i was like i felt like i was in a completely different movie than what was set up see that's kind of interesting because to me from the very start he was that mafioso or however you said it like character Mm -hmm. from the very start i did not see him as being the victim or the good guy the victim's the daughter that's the bottom line Mm -hmm. like to me in the film the only true there are two true victims in yeah. the film, and it is Tom. Tim Robbins. Tim Robbins. Yeah, there and, and his, yeah, character. his character's name is Dave, Bo- Dave yeah. Boyle. Dave yeah. Boyle, and then the daughter. That the daughter. Gets murdered. Yeah. Those are the only two characters that I really see as like victims. That maybe you could say her boyfriend. I think he was one of the most mm-hmm. underrated characters in the film. Yeah. His character his and his Brendan Harris. Dynamic, so interesting. Tom Tom Gurry is the name of the actor. Yeah, uh, plays Brendan Harris. So that's like this whole other part of the plot is the, the boyfriend is also looks like he's a possible yeah. murderer the here. The plot gets very it's very very complicated, and, and we're not going to do justice cool. to it here, or else we'll be like having a, a one hour uh, uh, review of this. But but Sean Penn has never liked this this boy. And, and he doesn't like him because he dislikes the boy's dad. Yeah, he did, and the, the boy's dad, had, there was a past there, yeah. and it goes into that. Uh, and this Brendan also has this, uh, this brother who, yeah. who is a mute, yeah. who doesn't speak, and his buddy. And they all factor into uh, this really, really elaborate murder mystery, uh, which is a centerpiece here, but it is so much more about victims of abuse and how what happens to to children yeah. um, can affect adulthood, yeah. but also about this neighborhood, this working class neighborhood, which um, which is kind of outside the law. Yeah. You really- I, I feel like, and, and maybe maybe that's a reaction. I, I'm supposed to be angry at the end of this thing, but I was furious. But I think I was furious at the story. I wasn't furious about. The characters and I'm perfectly fine with it. It is a capital T tragedy, um, and it plays out that way. And we haven't talked a whole lot about Tim Robbins, but and again, it, it's a flashier role than Sean Penn's. But those two are like one and two. They they were the best performances of that film year. And you know, Tim Robbins would often play like these slick guys or protagonist likable guys, Shawshank Redemption, that kind of thing. Somebody we're cheering for. There's points when we feel bad for him. Then there's points when he is downright scary. He has this monologue about werewolves and the way that's shot. It's 
It is frightening. And you can yet understand why his wife starts to become scared of him. And he's talking about a completely different thing than what everybody else is talking about. And that subtext is handled so well. And there are points when uh, he seems like kind of this poor victim, but there's this other point where he's so smart, he outsmarts the police officers who try to pull a fast one and pull him in on this stolen car thing, which wasn't true, just as an excuse to question him about his, his whereabouts. And he figures out a way to get out of it. And, and that really annoys Kevin Bacon's character and Lawrence Fishburne's character. But, and then you're like, okay, well, maybe he is manipulative enough to do this. Like, we are kind of left in it. Like, it is possible, even though it is a little bit of a myth that everybody who get, is an abuse victim then becomes an abuser. But it plays into that idea really well as far as, okay, they know, they know the history. They don't know specifically what happened, but they know the history of this guy walking around the neighborhood. And that's why he becomes suspect number one for a lot of people. But what happens to him is just, it's so sad because it's not deserved. And I cared so much about the Tim Robbins character. What was amazing to me, I mean, you're talking about, you know, Sean Penn's character is a tough guy mafioso from the beginning. And for me to feel as much as I felt for him in most of the movie, I think it's just extraordinary what Penn does. Yeah. Yeah. See, to me, like, this, the actor that I was most fascinated with in it was Kevin. I thought, one, his character had, to me, the most, one of the more interesting situations. In the fact that, like, he was investigating the murder of the daughter of somebody he used to be friends with. And then one of the suspects ended up being his other childhood friend. Like, to me, that's a very interesting dynamic. Mm -hmm. And the way his character handles it. Because throughout the film, his character is trying to believe the best in Dave Boyle. Yeah. Like his character is harmless. Truly, he would, yeah. yeah. He knows exactly what like happened. He's very aware. Like he, mm-hmm. mul- he says it multiple times where he's like, you know what? You're right. He's probably lying, but let's not assume he's lying because he killed her. He like repeats that so many times where he's like, yeah, I know he's coming across as like dishonest, but I don't think it's this. And back to the parade scene at the end. To me, it was almost more character accepting what happened. Because there's a scene before it where clearly they, one character, without saying it, admits what he did. And yeah. the other character, without saying it, says that he knows. Yeah. Kind they of don't that. say it directly, but, no, it, but they, they read each other. Yeah. From the same neighborhood, they understand each other. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Um, and to me, it was almost more of him reminding the guy that I know, like Sean Penn's character, mm-hmm. I know what you did. Mm-hmm. I haven't arrested you, but I know what you did. So it wasn't so much him being like, I'm coming after you, I'm going to hunt you down, but it was more Well, of I like, didn't, I've never taken it to be that. Fair. But, but it, to it, me, it, it was it, more of like a warning of, I know what happened, I know you've done all this, but there's also the problem of, can he prove it? Oh, yeah, I don't think he'll ever be able to prove exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. So it's him saying, I know I can't prove that you did this. I know I can't prove any of this, but I know you did it, which means you need to be careful. Because now you've got people who have their eyes closely watching what mm. you're doing. But he, but again, I, I'm not sure because, uh, you know, Jimmy Markham is Penn's character. Yeah. He's always had people watching him because he's yeah. an ex-con. And I, I sort of took it that they're both like doing a nod to each other. Well, it's great that life has worked out for both of us. 
here. It's like a happily ever after for those two. But maybe that is what they're doing because you also have to keep they in didn't mind get it, the those... scene before it, when they admit to each, when they're like admitting to each other that they know what happened. Right after the one, right after Jimmy walks away, mm-hmm. Sean gets a call from his ex-wife, and mm-hmm. she's coming home. Or maybe he's making the choice whether or not you can agree morally with it, but maybe he's making the choice to leave it alone. Yeah. Because if he doesn't, he's probably going to end up like Dave. Yeah. He he might be making the choice to choose his family Mm -hmm. and his daughter. I I guess both men, both men choose their family over everything else. Tim Tim Robbins sort of does it more so with his son. Yeah. But his wife, makes a choice where she she goes to yeah. Jimmy instead of talking it out with her husband. Yeah. And well, then instead she pays of going her, to the police because she's freaking like whatever. I had issues. I loved her character and I think the actor did an amazing yeah. job of portraying it. It's, it's a, it's a solid performance. But she was the most frustrating character. Because mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, so you've decided in your head that your husband has murdered this girl. That's the decision you've made. You believe that to be true. True enough that you're telling the guy whose daughter you think your husband has murdered that you think he murdered her. There is no way you can say that she didn't expect something bad to happen to her husband for it. Yeah. Because she went and told someone that everyone in the neighborhood knows Mm -hmm. is somewhat involved in crime. They all know that he has this entire group around him who have Mm -hmm. no fear of violent actions. And she chooses to tell him instead of choosing to tell the detective who she, like, it comes across that she knows he's kind of believing her husband Mm -hmm. or at least trying to stay neutral on it kind of thing. So in a way, she's partially responsible for her husband's death. Like, I had a hard time at the end having empathy for her, and I know Mm -hmm. it's a very sad scene. I had empathy for her son, but I'm like... You have a son, and you're willing to tell a mob boss, "Hey, I think my husband murdered your daughter." I know they're like, like family, though. I mean, well, in fact, they are. They are. Yeah. They are related to each other, right? Yeah. But but like for her to not have the foresight that maybe something bad could happen if I do this, mm-hmm. like it's just really like. But instead of going to the police, like you go to like Penn's the, the police in that neighborhood. I mean, yeah. he's he's the guy to go to if you have a problem. Yeah. He, he's the the dawn or whatever. Um, of that area, area, but how she gets treated after that because they treat her like all warm, like she's family yeah. until the deed is done. In the parade scene, she bumps into Kevin Bacon and he treats her so coldly. The Laura Linney character, we haven't talked a whole lot about, uh, she does the whole thing like, How could, how could a, a woman ever do that? And it's kind of like, it's, it's not your fault to, to her husband. I had a lot of trouble with that scene as well. Uh, at, at the end, just before the parade, where at what point in this did Laura Linney's character turn into Lady Macbeth? Like, I mean, like she's, she, also she's, wife of, she's also very willingly the wife of a mob, like boss or whatever. But she, she's, like, she seemed like oh, she cares about her kids, and she's like, seems like just more of a, a neighborhood is that she's wife. But then like, she is it's all of a sudden that she's the power base behind this guy, and I didn't see that coming from the any previous scene she just turns into this cold-blooded sociopath herself at the end were, were there hints of this beforehand like she was she didn't really like the daughter the older daughter said uh, she can't screw up my daughter's baptism day here's the thing that i think the film does very interestingly 
It asks the question, is there such thing as a non-selfish action? Every character in the film, by the end, has made the most selfish choice they mm. can in this scenario. Whether it's taking another person's life, handing a person's life over to someone else's hands, deciding that it's like how she says, like, oh, how could a woman do that? She's making an inherently selfish choice. Mm-hmm. She doesn't want her husband to feel guilt about what he's done. So she makes this choice to tell him that it's not actually his fault. She's making that selfish choice for the family. Sean, like, decides at the end that he's choosing his wife and daughter over everything else. Yeah, they're choosing family, but they're choosing a very selfish choice. She's also telling him, you could be the king, you could run this city. Yet there's a lot of interesting stuff in here. So, more good than bad. I think the thing is, at the end of the day, I think the idea, the concept of the film is amazing. I think the actors all, all did a really good job. Although I'll admit, I didn't find Sean Penn's character all that believable. It didn't do it for me. I didn't feel like moved at all by that. Maybe that's me just like, maybe I'm not a big Sean Penn fan. I don't know. I don't feel like I've seen a lot of his films. So I don't think I'm really like neither here nor there about him. But like, to me, like I didn't, so I wasn't the biggest fan of his acting. I don't mm-hmm. think it was bad. I don't think it hindered the film at all. I just wasn't like particularly moved by. I, I thought it was more subtle. But basically, what I was saying yeah. was that I do think it was a really interesting concept. I do think overall it had a really strong script, um, and I think that overall the acting had really powerful performances. This is the music editor at Rolling Stone magazine. This is William Miller. Yes, it is. I think he should be writing for us. From Cameron Crowe, writer-director of Jerry Maguire. If you're going to be a true journalist, you cannot make friends with the rock stars. Just make us look cool. God, it's going to get ugly, man. They're going to buy you drinks. Don't take drugs! They're going to fly you places for free. It's Bowie! You're gonna meet girls. We are not groupies. We don't have intercourse with these guys. Just blowjobs, and that's it. Amen. On the road with the band. Your mom called. Rock stars have kidnapped my son. Spirits run high. There's acid in the beer that's in the red cups. How do you know when it's kicked in? I am a golden talking about Almost Famous and the DVD I'm, I'm offering up is the director's edition which has the theatrical cut but the director's cut we decided to review uh, the director's cut version which is he's called Untitled and this is uh, his most personal film you could argue uh, this is his best film uh, it is maybe the high watermark of his career because after this we get into Vanilla Sky. I don't know if you've had the great good pleasure of yeah. I wish I had. Yeah. Well, or not. You know, you're probably fine. Uh, <laughs> then uh, we've had Elizabeth Town, which I am I'm a defender of Elizabeth Town movie that we were just mentioning that you were shocked that he directed called Aloha, which got a lot of heat because he it is based on a true story. I have not seen it for the record, but 
based on a true story and cast Emma Stone uh, in, as an Asian woman, I believe. And so we, we just haven't gotten the Cameron Crowe that emerged in the 1980s. He would start off as a screenwriter, but he was a screenwriter on a, a, a very popular 80s movie called Fast Times at Ridgemont High. As a filmmaker, he emerged with a movie called Say Anything. He did this uh, underrated movie called Singles in the early 90s. Then Jerry Maguire got him a lot of attention. Uh, and then this was a few years after Jerry Maguire. It was really, really hyped in 2000. It came out in the fall of 2000. It was like, this is the movie that's going to win Best Picture of the Year. Now, it wasn't nominated. He won Best Original Screenplay for it. And it is a solid movie. It is about a, a version of him growing up, discovering that his mom has lied to him about his actual age. And he's going to finish school several years early. His sister has instilled this love of music and he's taken it to the next level and he wants to write about music be a music critic music journalist he goes he's, he gets this job reviewing this local concert and he ends up following this band um they they like him but don't completely trust him but he goes ends up going on a journey where he goes on this this epic tour with them in through the early 70s. In here we encounter several colorful characters within the band. Not the lead singer, but the lead attraction is a character played by Billy Crudup. Uh, the lead singer who thinks he should have all of the fame and the attention is uh, played by Jason Lee, who's a terrific character actor. He does some of the best work in Crow movies. He's interesting. And then there are the groupies, who don't like to be called groupies. They are the Band-Aids, led by great, great performance by Kate Hudson, the daughter of Goldie Hawn. She was up for Best Supporting Actress. In my opinion, she easily should have won it. Yeah. But... She was also in the same category with the great Frances McDormand, who plays the boy's mother in here and has several very, very funny, flashy scenes. And she's a college professor who is not very traditional at all, but she's very nervous about her young son going, like one of the famous lines from the movie is she's teaching her class and in the middle she stops and says, rock stars have kidnapped my son. And uh, the acting is terrific, the story is terrific, yet I have some hesitations to go that crazy about it. The movie is centered around um, Patrick Fugit. So Will William Miller is the name of, of this boy, Patrick Fugit. And I'm going to go with the unpopular opinion that he's not a very good actor. And so there are scenes that because he is working with Kate Hudson uh, and some other incredibly talented actors, there are scenes that work, but they don't work because of him. Like if you just isolate the takes of him and some of his line deliveries, and this might be Cameron Crowe's fault as, as the director not getting the performance out of him, it is kind of wooden in places. So I think that's a little bit of an issue. It kind of goes back to the Mystic River idea. I'm not sure I like all of these characters. And with this, this is like a genuine director's cut. There is a whole ton of extra stuff in here. There's sequences which are much, much longer than they were in the theatrical cut. So we're spending even more time with them. I have to check on the running time of this director's cut. But for whatever reason this time, and it wasn't the first time I'd watched it, it exhausted me. I, I kind of was missing the theatrical cut. I wanted us to move on to the next section. And I'm a pretty patient film, like a film goer. I'll watch a four hour movie. I found reasons why these scenes 
were cut. I think they were cut for the right reasons. So if we're talking about the theatrical cut, I'm all over it. This one, I'm surprised how I am less thrilled with this version. And this might be the version that Cameron Crowe wanted to release, but I don't think I like it as much. I'm never going to give this a thumbs down or uh, a negative review because there's so much good stuff in here. And none of that is lost in either version. But I still am trying to figure out why Why is this like not one of my 10 favorite movies of all time. Anyway, that's a lot of me talking. I want to hear your opinion. This one isn't necessarily a negative thing that he's losing his innocence. Mm -hmm. Whereas Mystic River, horribly negative. Yes. <laughs> like these poor children had their innocence ripped away yes. from them. Whereas, like, I mean, one, I think this is supposed to be less of a depressing movie. Yeah, it's not. It's <laughs> yeah, not it's about not. abuse. No, it's not about, it's anything, not about like this. anything like that. It's almost the way that as it's happening to a kid, they would see these things. And I think all these films, most of them, some of them, are a good way of doing that. Because to me, I think that like he doesn't always, until it gets bad, he doesn't view any of the stuff as wrong. Mm-hmm. Even though I think as adults, we might see some of it and be like, ah, maybe a kid shouldn't be there, kind mm-hmm. of thing. But I think that it's interesting, so it's almost like this loss of innocence is like more of a growth away from. Because I don't, nobody can get through their childhood without having negative experiences. Yes. Yeah. Kind of thing. Like, that's impossible. And even if you have a childhood with perfect experiences, that in and of itself is negative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think that to me, it's like, it's a loss of innocence, but it's positive. Well, he, he puts up his hand and he to- totally volunteers for this where characters yeah. in, oh. I, w- I would say in, there's maybe one other movie that's a little yeah. bit closer to this, but in four of the movies, it is not sort of not by choice. I mean, but uh, I think it's almost like even like, obviously maybe it wasn't the best choice. There are plenty of things that happen that are not good. He is betrayed and it's like, there are negative experiences, but I do at the end of the day see it more as somebody growing and learning from their own choices and mistakes, and almost more importantly, learning from other people's mistakes. Yeah. 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 And walking away a more, a smarter young man mm-hmm. than others would be. Because he had maybe some not great experiences, but they weren't bad to the point of fully traumatizing him for the rest mm-hmm. of his life. But they were bad in the sense of, this is not a good thing happening. Now you've learned. Yeah. Now you kind of see, okay, what happened that led up to this? How could this have been handled differently? Like, I feel like there is a bit more of that in this film, which mm-hmm. I appreciate, because I feel like sometimes films focus too much on, like, something bad happens has to be the worst thing ever, and the person has to, like, be fully damaged as a human yes. kind of thing. Whereas this is almost, maybe it's told a little bit in, like, almost a bit of a glamorized way, but I feel like it's not. Like, yeah, there's some bits here where... Uh, it, it feels heightened. I, I have a friend who's in a band. Um, uh, when this movie came out, and he said absolutely everything about Almost Famous is accurate. Yeah. I mean, the infighting with the band, yeah. everybody wanting to be, you know, there's always somebody who's fine being in the background, but there are others who want to be the big star and are fighting for control yeah. and the management issues and, and, and the, I like the groupies the fact that this and all is that a more stuff. accurate depiction because I feel like a lot of other films, as soon as they talk about a band, they're like glamorizing the lifestyle uh-huh. of like rock and roll. When a 
like, it's not. Do you think it's that awesome all the time to wake up after doing coke for a night straight? Mm-hmm. Like, do you mm-hmm. think all these people feel awesome and they're ready to do these interviews and it's all like cameras and lights and like a super high and that they're all doing great all the time? Like, no. Like, no. And I feel like the film does a good job of being like, yes, there are moments that are heightened and that you feel larger than life, but it's also not all great all the time. Yeah. Like, I mean, the sequence that, and it all builds up beautifully, a series of events. The band gets into an enormous fight over a little thing where, and it is a, a big thing for, certainly for the Jason Lee character. There's this t-shirt of the band. <laughs> Everybody else is blurred out except for Billy Crudup. And then they get into a big fight. It looks like the band's going to all break up. And then they go their separate directions. Billy Crudup uh, takes uh, uh, takes William with him, and they go to, to a a teenager party somewhere in whatever town they're in and uh and then billy crudup ends up doing acid and like the i am a golden god business where he's standing on on this roof and he's gonna jump into this swimming pool and he where the payoff is is after that that morning when the bus comes to pick him up they all are in the band like in the, the bus traveling to the next place Everybody is so mad at each other. Nobody's talking. And uh, then we have an Elton John song come on. And one person starts singing. And then they all start singing. And they all are back together again. And I think in most movies, I would look at that scene and want to puke in my mouth. Because it is so sweet and sentimental. But... I feel like by that point, they've earned that scene. And there's some other big moments like that which are really, really earned. I, I don't know how, how, how you feel about Kate Hudson's performance. With Kate Hudson's character, like she has all of these rules. But she is totally in love with the Billy Crudup character who has a girlfriend back home. Yeah. And so she is the girlfriend for the tour. And she still, as much as she claims she's removed from everything... She's not, and it hurts when she gets traded and put aside. Like in a poker game, she is traded to another band because she's considered like this strange good luck charm for a good tour for these bands, and she just gets used. And it leads to uh, it leads to a suicide attempt, probably a call for help suicide attempt more than anything else. Yeah. And that's also where William is the one who figures it out and tracks her down, and basically saves her life. The other piece in there is that he falls in love with her. Yeah. You know, totally falls in love with her. This older woman who seems like she, you know, knows everything about the world. And then he realizes, no, she doesn't actually know that much. One of the nice touches for me in in the direction of it is um, when a a doctor or something has been called up and they're they're trying to deal with her ODing. And he's standing back while watching this happen and a Stevie Wonder love song comes on and you just see his face and he, he's still in love with her even though it's like the like a really really kind of gross moment uh, where she's having to puke up the whatever pills that she's taken and and that so there, there are a lot of really really nice details and touches in here we didn't talk about the late great Philip Seymour Hoffman who is this super super music nerd uh, he's very elitist uh, and strong opinions much like movie nerds you know um, and like like myself but he's the music version of that and he knows what William is getting himself into and he's kind of like the guy that William goes to for advice periodically throughout the film but he's this giant 
he's this middle-aged man boy and uh it's, it's a great little role for him i thought it was a little bit much when i first saw it but i appreciate that performance more and more and anyway i'm, I'm a fan but i'm not sure i'm a fan of the director's cut i don't know if you how you feel about the, the two versions because and maybe it's the fact that i've only seen the director's cut once mm -hmm. so i feel like maybe like i need to watch it again to really see how I feel about it and re realistically this is the second time I've seen the film because I saw Almost Famous like a few years ago yeah and I saw like the, yeah the regular yeah the regular one version. and I loved it and mm -hmm. I thought it was a great film and I thought it was entertaining and I thought that you know it made me sad but it didn't like wreck my mood kind of sad yeah you know where it's sad where you feel empathy for a character but not sad like the movie like destroyed your entire like day kind of thing there's, there's hope like, yeah. unlike Mystic River, there's hope at the end of this thing. Yeah, and for, it's like... For every character, nice really. feeling kind of thing, yeah. where it's like, it deals with subject matter, it almost gives you that feeling, like, a little bit, and I hate this word because it's overused, but a little bit of nostalgia. Mm-hmm. A little bit, just for youth in general yeah. kind of thing. Like, I love the original one so much. Yeah. I just think it's a fun film. Yeah. Like, I was talking to my friend about it the other day, it's like her favorite is film. it yeah she loves this has film. she seen the director's cut i don't think she has see this so. is my my big recommendation is if you are an enormous fan of almost famous this will add information yeah so i i think if if you're willing to whatever it is the three hours two and a half three hours cut that this is if you have the time to sit and watch it then do it because it will just give you a more detailed information i'm just not sure if for everybody it's something i can recommend i can totally recommend almost famous but yeah and that's the thing one. is like this director's cut i'm like i can appreciate it mm -hmm. you know there are certain things where i'm like you don't have to like something to appreciate it kind of thing but i just felt like it dragged on and dragged down this film for me. For this, I think that unless you are a huge fan of Almost Famous and you want all that extra information, mm -hmm. I think just watching the original cut is yeah. perfectly fine and you will get a great film out of it. And then afterwards, if you're like, I want to know more, then so yeah, just, it's like yeah. a special feature type of a thing. Yeah, but it's yeah. one of those things where for me, I'm like, I don't know if I really wanted to know more. You know, I was happy with the amount I knew. Yeah, I, I think so too. I mean, in this case, less is more. In all our lives, there's a fall from innocence. A time after which we are never the same. It happened in the summer of 1959. Stand By Me was based on a novella by Stephen King called The Body. And the basic idea is uh, these young boys hear that there's a dead body, but they have to travel down these railroad tracks. There are these older boys who are kind of violent bullies, more than kind of violent bullies, that are also going after this body too. Um, the main character, uh, 
is uh, played by a really, really terrific underrated actor when he was younger. And unfortunately, then he grew up and didn't get much work named Will Whedon. He plays Gordy Lachance. And the older version of him uh, in this movie is, uh, is somebody who becomes a writer and played by the great Richard Dreyfuss. Then we also have uh, an actor who I think we would be talking about uh, in the same sort of, like to say, a Christian Bale right now if he hadn't have died young, River Phoenix. Uh, he plays uh, Chris Chambers, who comes from a rougher background. And then two other friends are Corey Feldman, who's one of the two Corys from the 1980s movies, also in The Lost Boys. And then Jerry O'Connell, and, and uh, he it's kind of tough to recognize as being the Jerry O'Connell of today. Plays uh, Vern Tessio. All of these kids, not surprisingly, have have some difficulties in their backstory. Uh, but the Will Wheaton character, Gordy Lachance, he's suffering with the fact that he had this really popular older brother that everybody in this town loved, who died young. And that the older brother in flashback scenes is played by John Cusack, who's an actor I absolutely love. And his two scenes are, are amazing in here. It is an awesome movie, uh, considering that it's mostly child actors. Rob Reiner, who was, before all of this, he was a sitcom actor on, in All in the Family, playing a character named Meathead. Also is the son of uh, famous comedian Carl Reiner. But this movie, and this is Spinal Tap, and The Prince's Bride really put him on the map as a serious filmmaker. He hasn't really had you know the success that he had in the 80s and a little bit in the 90s. He is very, does a very nice job in here. Being a little bit of a Stephen King purist, not always, but often I am. I will defend the source material. Uh, Castle Rock is such an important town in the universe of Stephen King, and this is set in Castle Rock, but some decision was made along the way that they, they had to change this to Castle Rock, Oregon, as opposed to uh, set it in Maine. And I, I kind of, I, I don't know what the decision is other than the fact that they probably filmed it on the West Coast because it's closer to Hollywood, but that's a pretty picky criticism. Uh, some other major actors to highlight, um, is this was the first major film role for Kiefer Sutherland, who has Canadian roots, uh, and his, his mother's from Saskatchewan, where we are taping this podcast. He is awesome for, for a debut, and it led to greater success, of course, um, in kind of the second, or I don't want to call it the third act of his career. He's still pretty young, relatively speaking. Uh, he became a TV star, action star in 24, and uh, this show I haven't seen, Designated Survivor. He delivers a great performance, too. So it's this amazing ensemble, but they were all like people that were to become more prominent later on. Mm -hmm. I think there was like a cast of, other than Richard Dreyfuss, nobodies that Rob Reiner was uh, was banking on being able to, to pull this film off. And they, they do quite a good job. Is it perfect? No. There's some, some bits in there that I think are kind of strike a, a different tone than I, I think would work for this uh, this film. But we also have to keep in mind, this is the world of what, 11 year old boys, right? On the verge of, they aren't really even going into, they're starting to go into that junior high, high school age. And so some of the uh, segues in the film, it makes sense that it's kind of from, from this point of view. But there are scenes that require acting, like genuine, real film acting, not anything cutesy from these young men, and I feel that they deliver. So, well, that's my my general opinion of Stand By Me. What's your take on it? So I think the acting in the film 
I'm like just awesome. I think that I really love it when films focus on finding kid actors with genuine talent versus <laughs> finding kid actors that they're like, oh, they're cute. Let's yes. put them in front of a camera. Um, so I think that that's really interesting, and I think we see that a lot more now, where like people are finding these really bad kid actors. <laughs> But they're getting all this like attention kind of thing, and we're like, oh, they're amazing. And it's like, oh, are they though? Or <laughs> well, they can be amazing in one thing, but that doesn't mean they're going to yeah. be amazing in the next five and projects. And it's like, hey, are they amazing because they have genuine acting talent, or are they amazing because they have a director walking them through how to say each line in the exact tone of voice that they need at setting kind of thing? Like, yeah. I feel like there's also that. So I think that the acting is great. I think, like, honestly, my biggest flaw with it, and it is literally more of a flaw with me than the film is I just like wasn't necessarily super into it yeah I can't it's not like there was a specific reason I don't think there was anything that was particularly bad about the film or that really threw me off I just didn't find it interesting I didn't find the story that interesting I think that maybe the story could have been a bit more interesting maybe I was never an 11 year old boy so maybe that's (laughs) part of it is I was like you just can't relate to this thing at all Each other and there's some tears shed 
And it wasn't like, you know, we're, we're, we're peeling onions in front of them or something like that as a trick. Like, they, they got the performances out of those, those oh, two, yeah. the two guys. Jerry O'Connell, I wasn't... I wasn't as thrilled with uh, his performance. It was kind of more, he was more humorous. It was comic relief. Yeah. Um, and then uh, uh, Corey Feldman here, he was fine. He had anger management issues because, you know, his, his father had been institutionalized and that gets thrown in his face a few times and he just reacts immediately. So he's got that stuff. But I, I could see the acting in that a little bit more. The other two guys, I thought they were actual like human being boys having a genuine conversation. The other one is the very end when things do change at the end of like this whole adventure, battling off these bullies, seeing oh, yeah. seeing death for the first time. This is what it actually is. It's not an abstract concept. This is what it looks like if a young person dies and then going back to their lives and they're all separating. And there's this shot where River Phoenix, his character disappears. And a few short years later in the Viper Club, he ODs and dies. And that just after that happened, and it's again just having that information, it, it is heartbreaking because I really feel like he, if he had been able to live his life completely to some sort of uh, normal age, he would be considered one of the great actors. He'd be up there with oh, the yeah. Brando and De Niro and oh for sure uh, in, in, in that in that caliber because. He, this a movie, another uh, movie that not a lot of people have seen called Running on Empty. He is he is spectacularly good. Oh, um, My Own Private Idaho with uh, Keanu Reeves, directed by Gus Van Sant. Yeah. You know, as he got older, he got better and better and better. But he was pretty amazing in Stand By Me. So I think there's, I, I don't want to think, like, I don't want to oversell it. And it is a very popular movie. I'd be surprised if there are people that haven't heard about it yet. Um, but you might be surprised in this in this title. stellar list of films, I may not, you know, have it as far, as far as awarding points at the end. I may not have given it as many points as you might expect based on this review. But, but I totally get behind what you're saying. That I mean, just there's some movies where I watch and like, what's the big deal here? Yeah. I mean, I got the story. Now I can move on with my life. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. Enough. Like amazing acting. Yeah. Absolutely awesome acting from these child actors and really from all of the actors and mm -hmm. they gave a great performance. At the end of the day for me it's just one of those things where I'm like, I just can't relate to this film. Clint Eastwood movies where he acted in and directed 
by the end of his life. Kubrick, he only made a handful of films. Lolita is a movie that happened after Spartacus. Spartacus was a studio film that Kubrick had a director's cut for. Uh, I believe it involved a, you know, a scene which suggested some homosexuality, and the studio said it couldn't. They couldn't have that. And producers in the studio took over the film he directed, and he just backed away. And he left the United States. He lived in England for the rest of his life. He made his movies in England. He was done done with it. So in most of his films were set in the United States or in the case of Full Metal Jacket in Vietnam uh, going forward, but he shot them all uh, in his studio and he was kind of left alone to do his own thing. And he was insanely talented. Insane. He just... And also, you could argue insane. But, oh, yeah. But he's also <laughs> I don't talented. think you can have that level of talent without being a little bit off yeah. your rocker, you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. I genuinely don't think that there is somebody who is at that level of talent who is, like, fully grounded in reality. No. I don't think to dedicate your life that strongly to one thing no. that you can really, like, function as well in the rest of the world. But he is, like, an insanely good director. He is good at his craft. He was craft, but there was also... There was more to it than that. I mean, he got some of the best work out of some of these actors. Lolita is interesting. So if you're going to like totally leave the studio system, he takes one of the most controversial novels ever and in the early 60s releases Lolita. So if you don't know what Lolita is about, uh, essentially this, um, this British uh, man is named uh, Humbert Humbert. Uh, is looking for a boarding house in this small town and he's a professor and he uh, comes upon uh, the house of Charlotte Hayes played by Shelley Winters who is another just amazing actor and he finds immediately finds this woman very obnoxious and he's trying to find a kind and British way of backing out of this situation and then he spots her teenage daughter, Lolita, played by Sue Lyon in this version. In this version, I liked a lot more uh, than the the 1990s version that was uh, released, which was considered more shocking in many ways. Yeah. Um, and what then happens is, through a series of events, uh, he tries to spend as much time as he can with Lolita. Uh, she gets sent off to this camp so that uh, Charlotte, who has fallen in love with Humbert Humbert, so that they can get married. He marries her basically so he can stay close to Lolita. Um, she eventually discovers that, oh, uh, he's hasn't been all that honest about uh, that relationship. And tragically, uh, she runs out into the street and gets hit by a car and killed. And now Humbert Humbert is the sole guardian of Lolita. And he goes, take, he takes her from this camp and they go on a sort of a crazy road trip. But they're not alone in this road trip because there is this uh, playwright. Um, and the playwright is uh, named Claire Quilty, played by the great Peter Sellers. And Peter Sellers uses all of his um, abilities to create multiple characters to appear to Humbert Humbert as a whole series of different people um, throughout this. And it feeds into this paranoia that Humbert Humbert has. You know, at any moment he could be arrested for what he's doing because he's, he 
he is uh, basically taking Lolita as his lover, and she is really, really underaged. Okay, and that's that's the setup to this uh, hilarious and lighthearted good time that is called Lolita, which at that time nobody thought, nobody in their right mind thought, could be turned into a film. What is your take on this version of Lolita? You've read the Yes, and I honestly love the novel for Lolita. And this is kind of where my first issue with the film comes up. Yeah. When I read that novel, there was not a moment where my skin wasn't crawling. Mm -hmm. I feel like people give the writer a lot of flack and are like, he's a pedophile, he does all this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, I don't know his personal life Mm -hmm. at all. I have not looked into the author to figure out if he actually was a creep or if he wrote this story or what happened. Do you know that? I, I don't I don't claim, I, I don't claim to know if if this guy was writing some sort of confessional or, or yeah what which I, I don't think he was because no. I remember at one point I looked it up and there wasn't like it was kind of talk about like oh people speculate it but there was nothing like that was ever concrete more than somebody reading the book and going whoever wrote this was messed up kind of thing like that was kind of as concrete as I, I, I do feel like what I'm aware when somebody creates something then they suddenly get identified like they're yeah. always writing about. Their, their own lives. Yeah. Maybe he was interested in taboos and controversial themes yeah, exactly. and, 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 so, and in that direction. So, I mean... I, and to me, from the writing style I got, even though it's written from Professor's perspective, yeah. so it is him not, like... He doesn't claim that what he's doing is really wrong, but the entire time you're reading it, you get that gross skin-crawling feeling. Mm-hmm kind of thing where you're like it's repulsive what he's talking about he's talking about wanting to have sex with and viewing young young child females as objects Mm -hmm. the entire book Mm -hmm. the way he talks about them the language he uses he the character is clearly messed up enough to believe that they are his property and his right and his domain i didn't get that same idea from the film really yeah i got a little bit like in the third act when he's so possessive yeah that's when i started to get it but to me i'm like the book from the very beginning this guy is in the wrong Mm -hmm. like his entire character is in the wrong but i find that the film at times makes it seem like lolita's also in the wrong that she leads him yeah and i I hate that i hate Mm -hmm. that so much when people are like oh well this tiny little 14 year old who's never experienced anything, mm-hmm. yeah, she's to blame for it, kind of thing. And I don't think that yeah. the film really did this as much, but it does, because of the fact that they started to blur that line, like it felt like at the beginning the line mm-hmm. was a little blurred, mm-hmm. that's what really irked me. And I'm glad that the third act happened. Yeah. I'm glad that they really kind of drove home the fact that he's possessive, but for me it kind of seemed like they were trying to make it play out as a normal relationship gone sour, mm-hmm. which, like, to me, the book didn't do. But this is, uh, and, and the film does follow Humbert Humbert, doing the yeah. voiceover narration. We're seeing the story from his point of view. Yeah. And, you know, at the end, I mean, he, his perspective is this is a tragic love story. Oh, yeah. And it, it, is, it is not... I feel that both film versions play into that a little bit too, where uh, that, that she's she's more aware than she would be. I mean, she's I aware of some things, yeah, you know, and but but to me, like, because I've read the book, to and blame I've also her is, read the screenplay. 
screenplay. Yeah. I watched the film and I've read the screenplay. And I got the screenplay because when I watched the movie, I like something was off and I was like, what is it? Mm-hmm. What is it that's like making this not as well done as the book? Because I don't think it's the directing. No. I don't think that at all. And I don't I wouldn't even necessarily say it was the acting as much. I don't know, maybe a bit. But I read the screenplay, and that's where I started to see the variations. And it's the same, the, the novelist wrote the screenplay. Yeah. Which is interesting. Kubrick didn't write the screenplay for this. So. To me, is that in the book, it seems like the choice of wording used comes across as more blatantly manipulative. Like, you're able to see where it's being manipulative and where he's wrong more easily, even though it's written in the same style. Like, mm-hmm. it's written as his journal talking about. But in the screenplay, it just comes across more as like like he's in the right and that you're not, and that that's how the audience is supposed to view it. I feel like with the book, and maybe this is just my interpretation, but like you were never supposed to see his actions as being okay or justified. Like, I mean, think about the first page in the book, mm-hmm. even, is like feels honestly like there's like bugs under your skin. It's yeah. so gross. Yeah. But like the first part of the film doesn't feel like that at all. It feels like that because you know the story. Yeah. Everybody knows the story of Lolita. Like when somebody says Lolita, you know what that means, yeah. kind well, of thing. I, I, there may be some people who Maybe don't. People They'll know the, the the term. Yeah. I mean, I think it's been but I think kind of used in a pornographic people. type of uh, yeah, like, context oh, yeah, now. Uh, but but I, I'd be very surprised if many of my high school students will know that's, that Lolita is a a, a novel fair. and that there are two. But films. I feel like okay. I feel like a lot. Of no, or if you're going in to see the film, you probably have enough background to know that it's about this pedophile yes. who is infatuated with this 14-year-old girl and stalks her and kidnaps her and rapes her. Yeah. Like, to break it down, that's what well, That's exactly what it is. Yeah. And tries to control her, I mean... Yeah, and manipulates won't, her. Won't let her be in the school play, and then she conspires with the <laughs> Quilty character, this playwright... And that's a very interesting role. I actually think think Peter Sellers should have been up for an Academy Award for it. No. But it was probably because the film was so controversial yeah. uh, that it, it didn't get that kind of attention necessarily. But Because he himself is a pedophile as well. Yeah. So she's kind of run from... She runs from one pedophile to the other pedophile. What's interesting too is that the Shelley Winters character previously had a crush on Claire Quilty. And kind of wanted this kind of arrangement that she has with Humbert Humbert. So it's almost like she's attracted to men who are attracted to her daughter. Several times when I've seen this, and I I don't know if these are choices of Shelley Winters or what, they, they, they make that character into such an unpleasant woman to be around. Yeah. But this time, just watching it critically, like I feel so horrible for her. feel so bad that... What, what, what is her sin? She's approaching middle age and uh, she's a single mother. At, at a at time, time being a single mother was not okay. It was not. And and so she's she's just trying to to find somebody to love and she's picking the wrong people. She Her, her method of parenting is not fantastic, I would say. But part of her, in some sort of subconscious way, almost feels like she's competing with her daughter and that becomes a problem and then she kind of her solution is just to get rid of her daughter like her daughter never existed so that she can be with this man and again i feel like but because it is like her story is truly tragic 
Mm-hmm. Her story is so tragic. She, she's the most sympathetic character yeah. in this. Like, who are we going to get and behind? I, I mean, we probably should get behind Lolita. Yeah. But the way Lolita's portrayed in the film versions, at, le- at least, is that she's somewhat manipulative, as you said. But is she? I well, mean... I know, like, to me, and maybe it's because, like, before I read the book and before I saw the film, like, because my brother hates Vogue. Mm-hmm. He hates everything about it. He yeah. thinks it is, like, repulsive literature. Um, so he, like, told me a bit about the fact that it's a dude who's infatuated with a child kind of mm-hmm. thing before I read it. So I knew, like, about it since a very young age kind of thing. But I feel like, again, in the book, the way that his warp, the fact that it was his version of warped reality stuck out more. Like, in the book, there was never a point where I was like, well, that was manipulative of Lolita kind of thing mm-hmm. it always came across as no it's the adults doing something wrong and he's trying to like push blame onto her kind of thing when yeah. it's clearly not her fault yeah um and again i feel like the film just missed that mark and maybe if like maybe if the acting was a bit different that would change it mm-hmm. maybe if the person playing the 14 year old looked a lot younger that would change it yeah she she looks and, and she looks like i think she was old like well, yeah. to, to actually get away with it, I think she was older. much older than, than Lolita actually is. Yeah, and I, mean, that I was, understand the fact that you obviously have to have an actor of a certain age. That was the like, um, controversy with the 1990s version where this uh, young woman named Dominic Swain played Lolita. Yeah. And I think she was 13 years old or yeah. she was the actual age of Lolita. And, like, and there were so many things in the 90s films that they did so horribly. <sighs> But it, I'm like, it, it is it is, how? A, it is a tough movie to, to watch, and it, and it isn't because like we're, we're sensitive to the material here or anything, but it, it's just it's so like it's a, it's exploitative. Yeah, and it's such a botched version of it. Like, it's, it's not really. It's that like you tr- kind of told somebody. It's like you told somebody the events of Lolita without them realizing that any of those events were wrong. Like, yeah. it's like you told the director, oh, so this dude falls in love, or, like, this woman falls in love with this guy, she marries him, um, she ends up dying, he, like, ends up loving her daughter, mm-hmm. um, and then this other dude, like, takes her away from him, and it's really yeah, sad. And, it's like and you never explain to him the fact that she was actually a minor, and that it was actually messed up, and somehow the casting just worked out that she was played mm-hmm. by a minor. Yeah. Like, it's like, nobody explained to him that, no, he this, the main character in the story is a pedophile kind of thing and like at least in this near the end you start to see it but again it just i feel like in the book it felt even though it technically was never addressed it feels a lot more addressed Mm -hmm. the fact that what he's doing is repulsive and Mm -hmm. wrong and like you feel more empathy for lolita in it Mm -hmm. maybe it's because in the book they get to take more time you know they've that yeah yeah time was like this this is as far as kubrick's movies this is one of his most concise i mean it's it is it is edgy, but it is subtle because wow. they they played around with the censors. Like there's a lot of stuff that I noted in here where they say things that have like sexual meaning and double entendres. But I think if you're an innocent moviegoer at that time, and I didn't really pick up on it the first time I watched it too, but there there are a lot of uh, references here which are kind of edgy. I mean, there's a suggestion there's this couple who have this daughter who's friends with Lolita and mm-hmm. suggests. That they're swingers, you know, and but it, that's handled in a very delicate way. But the, the word choice and the subtext is there. A lot of what Peter Sellers' character says 
Yeah. It's really, really creepy. Oh, yeah. Really creepy stuff. Uh, he's he is so interesting in every scene he is in. James Mason, I think, does a, a nice job of playing a really horrible person. I don't mind Sue Lyon. I I, I agree that I, I mean I didn't I'm not sure she went on to much after this. Yeah. I didn't think she was a bad actor. I just no. thought but she's, it, she looks she way too so old for this. Older. Yeah. And it's not like she was even old. She was a young woman. But, like, she was so clearly so old that when she makes any amount of advance, it comes across as normal and okay. Because yeah. in your head, you're not connecting the fact that this is a child. Yeah. Yeah, she like, doesn't look... Yeah. I mean, she looks young, but not... She doesn't look a Not little, that young. That's the no. thing. She does not look a little. No. No. Like, no, um, and that's... So it makes it... Yeah, it makes it tough. There's... Uh, I think it's a fascinating movie. I think yeah. it's as fascinating as any of Kubrick's work. Oh, yeah. And it's it's always about just, like, when characters are talking to each other, but it's it's like they're speaking they're speaking English, but it's another language. Oh, a lot okay. of the Peter Sellers, uh, James Mason scenes are like that. Um, Sellers himself is actually British, but he, he was a chameleon. I mean, he could do, he could do anything. Kubrick used him again in Dr. Strangelove. Similar type of idea. He actually did multiple roles. In this case, he was clear quilty the entire time, but he got to play all these different versions. There's pretends to be this undercover police officer, yeah. police convention to freak out Humbert Humbert, and uh, pretends to be this uh, guidance counselor. Just walks into the house and and talks about uh, you know makes it seem like there's gonna be psychologists coming into examine the the home life for Lolita and all those scenes work for me the end is tragic but I I think there's a danger that people could misread this and watch this and feel uh, this great sympathy for Humbert Humbert he deserves everything he gets I mean he, he deserves worse he, than he gets he and, gets away pretty I mean, well for how bad he yeah does. well he goes to jail and he dies two years later uh, Quilty gets his you know comeuppance because he's a whore like, in, in some ways, you can almost argue that he is worse than Humbert Humbert. There, I mean, this is not a competition you want to have, but he... Who's the worst pedophile? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's exactly it. I mean, he, he in a way, he also kidnaps Lolita and takes her into... Tries to get her into some sort of pornography. There's that unusual... One of the most fascinating things that will never be... I don't know if it's explained in the novel. Is that woman who travels around with Quilty? And yeah. she's almost somebody who's kind of recruiting for him too and like that's another absolutely horrible character in here that we don't spend much time with and and so i i am a fan of almost every kubrick film i do think that in in some ways this is a terrific list of movies but this one might be might be the best of the six that may be controversial to say that but the subject matter is horrible it is not for everybody uh, so i much like a lot of kubrick movies I, I love them, but I don't recommend them to a general audience. If you have read the novel, if you can handle spending time with these horrible people for... And it's not that long with this particular version. No, it's not. It's maybe worth checking out, but if you get bothered by this subject matter, stay away from Lolita. I had the craziest dream last night about a girl who was turned into a swan. But her prince falls for the wrong girl, Lynn. She kills herself. He promised to feature me more this season. Well, he should. You've been there long enough. And you're the most dedicated dancer in the company. 
our new swan queen, the exquisite Nina Sayers. I'm Lily. You're gonna be amazing. I watch the way she moves. Sensual. She's not faking it. Seduces! Attack it! Attack it! Come on! Where'd you get these? It's nothing. You sweet girl. Feel my touch. Respond to it. It's so hard for teacher. I don't want to talk about that. I have told everybody that I know for several years that um, I am a Natalie Portman fan. She's incredible. Yeah, I to confess, I have a I have a celebrity crush on her. Maybe a little bit less so than I, I used to, but I mean, uh, not. yeah, <laughs> I, uh, you know, she's a beautiful woman, but she's also a very talented actor, very smart. That's why sometimes when I see movies that I feel are beneath her, that I get a little bit more frustrated. My expectations are higher for her. I want to start off by saying I really love Black Swan, but I cannot figure out for the life of me why I could not totally get on board with Natalie Portman winning the Academy Award for this movie. There was a equally dark movie a few years before that called Closer, which I think she should have easily won the Academy Award for, but it was a totally different thing. And, and maybe I shouldn't be spending much time on the Academy Awards because it is a bit of a political competition and they just decided the year of Black Swan that was that was her time to win. And she had, since being a, a child in, in the professional, she had been producing mostly solid work. But this is her crowning achievement and it's also directed by a very interesting filmmaker, Darren Aronofsky. Uh, I would say this is not his most prominent film. His most prominent film is Requiem for a Dream. I, I think as a director, Aronofsky had more of a budget for Black Swan, but he used it effectively. Looking at some of the, the documentaries on the making of the film, it was a very tight timeline that they had to make it. Oh, yeah. And he makes uh, a really interesting film, which is both beautiful and horrific. There are some very disturbing scenes in this. Should get to the plot a little bit. A, 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 a dancer in New York who's, who's part of you know a very famous company, much to her surprise, but maybe not surprise, she gets the lead role. And before this, on a regular basis, she is seeing her twin all over New York, but it seems to be a more confident and somewhat scarier version of herself. She's also dealing with her mother, who is a very interesting character, played by Barbara Hershey. For some reason, Barbara Hershey has this presence in films where she's, she's very frightening. Yeah. And there, there's, there's a scene where, to celebrate uh, the fact that she got this lead role, her her mom just impulsively buys this giant uh, cake. When when Natalie Portman says, you know, I, oh, I, I can't, I can't, I can't eat it and fights that, then then the mother gets really kind of defensive and upset and, and somewhat scary and just like throws out this cake. Which I also find to just be like one of the most frustrating moments in the film. Do you? Yeah. Just because of the fact that it's like, it's not like her saying she can't eat the cake is being unreasonable. She obviously can't eat it. She just got cast yes. in the most, like, going to be physically grueling role mm -hmm. that she will have. 
Her mother pushes her to be a dancer. That's what's so frustrating about it. But she knows she can't have it. Yeah. It, it's it, it's like it's a strange no character, winning. like in the yeah. writing of it, and it's a well-written film. I, oh I, yeah. I, I, I would I would. Suggest. And I don't even dislike the fact that it has this in it. It's literally just the fact that like sitting there watching it, you're just so stressed out by it. That's honestly. Just how trying to get I the names that. of the screenwriters. There were several screenwriters. On That's this, how I Mark, that Mark Heyman, Andres Hines, and John G. McCullough. But I think that character is never quite figured out. And, and, and part of it might be the fact that we are seeing this movie through Natalie Portman's eyes, and she's maybe not a reliable narrator. So maybe it's one of those things where at points she's seen her mother as one thing, and then she's seen her mother as another thing. And maybe that explains that scene, because there's points where her mother is actually giving her good advice and trying to help her and is trying to help her like recognize you're, you know, you're stressing out too much with this role. Yeah. We need to find some life balance here, that kind of thing. But then there's other times where it feels like she's leading into kind of the, the, the worst parts of, of, of this world for this character. Oh, yeah. But that, to me, that, that cake thing is totally about like the eating disorder business in that world. And we just casually will see scenes where uh, Portman's character, uh, Nina Sayers is her character, where Nina is uh, is just throwing up whatever she she is eating, and it's yeah. it's not you know they don't take time to to explain it or anything. It's it's just what they're all doing. I mean, and it, I mean, it's part of the the process, and it it is kind of a comment on that art form. But it's also interesting because it's like it's a comment on that art form, but at the same time, like during that film. Wasn't it Mila Kunis? Is that how you say her last Yeah, Mila Kunis, yeah. Who admitted that her diet while preparing for that role mm-hmm. was to smoke a pack of cigarettes. Yeah. And, like, eat an apple. Yeah. Like, where she, where it's, like, to me very interesting to see the fact that one of the actors in the film, I don't know about Natalie Portman, and they're both very well, naturally petite. They are, yeah. Like, that's also a thing to keep in mind. Like, these are very petite women, yet at least one of them was taking this awful, awful, quote-unquote-ish to, like, fit the role of this film that is dealing with this subject matter. It's a very interesting thing. I think they were both method-ish yeah. with, with this. What's really weird about it is the Mila Kunis character comes in, and she's apparently this dancer from San Francisco who's come in, knows herself so well, she is so relaxed about things. She's She will go out and she will eat all this food. Yeah. She's very few scenes where she's actually dancing in there, so I'm not sure why she was on some sort of a strict diet for this. When well, like, I think part of it was the fact that she needed to look like this insanely petite woman mm-hmm. to add to the frustration that the other character felt. That she doesn't have to try. Yeah, because like, she doesn't have to like uh, yeah, starve she... herself to 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 get to this place. Yeah, okay, I I could sort of understand that then because the character herself is not afraid to eat or not afraid to anything but she's from the eyes of nina this mm-hmm. character is everything she wants to yeah. be right so she lily is the embodiment of being able to be a perfect dancer without even trying of being able to be perfect at everything being able to eat whatever she wants mm-hmm. kind of thing while still being smaller than her yeah. while still being thinner than her will still be more athletic than her and yeah. so i think that's like partially why she lost the weight mm-hmm. is because She's supposed to represent what Nina's character wants to be. Yes. Yeah, in, in many ways. And she's more naturally able to play the, the black swan half. Yeah. 
and Nina is a very sheltered. I mean, yeah. she hasn't had an easy life, I don't think. Yeah. Um, but but with her mom, but she 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 is very young. Like she still has like stuffed animals, and she has oh. kind of a princess bed type of thing. Uh, and that all kinds of that changes through this whole this yeah. whole process of trying to be more sexual. I mean, that's that's but that's I think the big she's push. a really good example of somebody being too sheltered in life. Mm-hmm. Her mother has clearly tried to shelter her quite an extreme amount, yeah. kind of thing, and that's led to her also the same way that in some of the other films people went through such traumatic obviously traumatic experiences that they couldn't cope Mm -hmm. she went through the opposite of having been so sheltered Mm -hmm. that she can't cope with the real world eye yeah and and she's been forced to here there's a sequence where she goes out with mila kunis and her her mom keeps calling and trying and then eventually she's sort of ignores that uh i'm gonna make a controversial statement here Mm -hmm. the performance in the film Mila Kunis, not Natalie Portman. I would agree with that. She, and as sometimes happens again in this world of the Academy Awards, the movie gets up for best picture, best director, writing, but the, the snub was Mila Kunis did not get the nomination. She was known as a comedy, and still is really more known as a, uh, a comedic actor from mm-hmm. that 70s show. Didn't think that much of her abilities as an actor until I saw this. Maybe I was. Maybe it's not fair because my expectations for Natalie Portman are sky high when I see this film, and I hear this is the performance of the year. And Mila Kunis, this is such a different casting choice, a different type of role. And to me, it's just one person was fine. There is nothing wrong with Portman's performance, but I really don't think it's her best performance. She did the work. I mean, she she went back. She used to dance, but she hadn't for a long time. She got the coaching. She, that's her dancing in several scenes. Quick performance. My argument on this. I do think that Mila had the standout performance in it as Louis. Yeah. I think she was incredible. But I think saying that Natalie Portman's performance was fine is such, like, so insulting. Is it? Because she was incredible in it. Just because maybe it wasn't her best. Has she ever had a bad performance, you know? Yes. Like, she's fair. But, like, she's Attack of the Clones, check that one out. She, okay. But that was a that was okay, not necessarily Wars, your fault. And that's also a whole other argument. And I will where the heart is. I'm not getting into those discussions. Another movie called Where the Heart Is. About Star Wars. So... Where the heart is. She if you want to get away is Star Wars. an incredible actress, actor who was trained very hard and is very dedicated mm-hmm. to her craft. And she did an amazing performance. It mm-hmm. was not her best performance, but in no way did I find it a disappointing performance by any means. I think it was still great, and I think that both of them did an amazing performance. Did I mean? Did you feel that? The full mental breakdown was, was it Portman or was it Darren Aronofsky? Because I, at the end of the day, I thought she is working with an amazing visual director who can build up the tension so well. We see this in his other work. And the reason it comes across so strong towards the end is because of his direction, not necessarily because... I thought it was of her performance because of the fact that, like you said earlier, she's not necessarily a reliable narrator. So I think that the entire thing did, because it is still being told from her perspective. I think that what, to me, why her breakdown was so interesting is because of the fact that it's from her perspective and maybe everything wasn't that reliable. How she's kind of... Mm-hmm 
claiming the events like maybe it's not reliable and to me that's an interesting part i think the film does a really good job of walking the line of never telling you don't trust what she tells you never telling you that she's not reliable but still leaving you at moments questioning how reliable she is i guess part of me just wanted to see just the straight up yeah. mental breakdown of this character. We're, we're kind of led down this garden path and, and that's okay. It's a very beautifully shot film. Yeah. Uh, a couple other shout outs. Uh, Winona Ryder, she's having a little bit of a resurgence because of Stranger Things. She was like the it girl. Uh, then she had this unfortunate situation where she got caught shoplifting and bad publicity led to some ridiculous amount of time where she wasn't in anything and it's like what happened to Winona Ryder and I'm glad she's back but this was one of the roles that she had kind of in the middle of all this and she's being now retired and replaced and she's been treated the same way by Vincent Castle or Kizel Castle um, who's the head of the the director of, of the ballet and you know that all of the inappropriate stuff that he is pulling with Portman he pulled with uh, oh, yeah. with, with Ryder and and there's points where like she ends up in this horrible car accident and one of the most horrific scenes is where we see Ryder just stab herself in the face in 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 just a way I it was a very impactful I think the scariest scene in the whole thing to be oh, honest yeah. there's a lot of stuff where we're supposed to be scared some of the stuff with with Portman was the images were horrible but that one was the one that stayed with me every time I watched that so I think Ryder uh, she doesn't have a lot of screen time but she does a nice job with the role that she's given here too yeah yeah like overall I will say like this is I wouldn't necessarily say it's in my top 10 favorites mm -hmm. but I do love this film. yeah overall like with everything negative that I might say about it I do truly love that film and I, I, I feel like I've been a bit too negative here. Like, of this list, I, I think this is, you know, again, one of, one of my favorites yeah. from this list. It's not as, as old as a couple of the other ones, but I, it, it is a solid film. guest on the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. You're welcome. And I'm about to uh, shed one of the movies off of my shelf here. So uh, this will be tough for sure. So I'm going to start off with uh, the 60 points that you have to award among the six films. Mm -hmm. So starting off with how many points are you uh, going to give to Battle Royale? Because um, I was thinking of each film as like a 0 to 10, just to break it up a bit better in my head. Oh, okay. I definitely got more. <laughs> but... Like, I give this one, like, an eight. Eight. I think it, like, almost hit its mark perfectly. We looked at Mystic River. Mm -hmm. And with Mystic River, how many points would you award Mystic River? I gave that one nine. Nine? So you like that one more? I don't know. I'm realizing, looking at this, that the system got, like, completely out, out of hand. <laughs> like, I know this was for Battle Royale. Well, it's like, like, I feel like I just, like, looked at it and went... I give it that. <laughs> like, like it's pretty, yeah. But yeah. the one point thing is like very, very uh, minuscule. Give me a bad point system to work with. <laughs> so that's the entire basis of the show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So, so then. no, yeah, it doesn't really matter. I mm -hmm. might be changing it in my head right now, but that's fine. It doesn't matter. So, uh, untitled or the director's cut of Almost Famous. How many points would you award that? Or I gave that one thirteen. Thirteen, and then we looked at Stand by Me. 
And how many points would stand by me earn? Give that one a four. And Lolita. Lolita, I gave a seven. And last off, the one that you mentioned was one of the ones that you wanted to uh, do the show to talk about. Yeah, that Black one, Swan. How I'll many points? Nice little 18. 18 points. I will clarify, this does not mean that I prefer certain films over the others or that it's specifically off of like a specific thing. It's like a combination of my personal opinion versus how well I think they actually achieved their goal. Okay. Yeah. Well, and that's the way to go about it, I think. You know, what did they want and how did, did they, they achieve, achieve it? Because yep. this is an opinion thing, I'm also throwing in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, I will give you mine and then uh, we will go over the, the grand totals after that. Okay. All right. So I awarded uh, Battle Royale 10 points. Very, very strong film. I think perhaps of the movies that we are reviewing, may, might be the one that the least number of people have seen. Fair. Possibly. Then with Mystic River, I gave I gave it five points. I really, really want to love this movie as much as I love the the, the opening to it, mm-hmm. but I have I still cannot reconcile some problems I have with it. So it's a, it's a little bit lower I think than than some others. All right, then we were looking at uh, almost famous director's cut. Uh, I gave that five points as well. If it was the theatrical cut, and in some ways, if it ends up losing, I'm giving up both the director's cut and the theatrical cut because they're included in the same DVD. So uh, that that is the danger. But it was the one that was most like homework for some reason. Hmm. This list for me. I'm not sure what that would have been for you, but I uh, I gave fewer points uh, fewer points to that one. Okay, I think then we're on to Stand by Me. Stand by Me. I also gave five points to. So I I, I felt like I was defending it. I mean, I, I really do like it. I like it more uh, now, now that I'm older than when I first saw it. I can appreciate it a bit more. But I, I still have trouble, like you said, kind of getting excited about it. Yeah. Um, I think that's the one for me that felt the most like homework when watching it. But I, it, it is a beloved movie. I mean, there are people that oh, yeah. will, would have ripped both of us apart in different yeah. ways and over I mean, this again, one. Like, to be fair, none of the films we're talking about are bad movies. No, no. In this like, case, it, any it, it was tough. Really well, I, good I mean, I, I bought all of these, but these are all, for our first episode, stellar, stellar movies. Uh, I think we're on to Lolita then. Mm. And uh, Lolita, I, I gave 20 points to. I said, I'm a Kubrick fan. It, on the surface, it doesn't look, it, this isn't The Shining, this isn't uh, A Clockwork Orange, but it, it does have that impact because you're just watching these horrible people doing these horrible things. I, I heard somebody recently say that um, Kubrick was was interested in men doing horrible things, and that was kind of the through line. All of these films, which were in so many different genres, I mean, you, you, you cannot, he, in a short number of films, he... He dealt with a, a whole range of material there. Oh, so yeah. I, again, I, I have a, a lot of respect for, for, for Lolita and I, it, uh, it earned the most points of any of the movies that we're talking about. As hard as I was on Natalie Portman, uh, I gave Black Swan 15 points. All right, so, so our grand total for Battle Royale is 18 points. Mystic River has 14 points. Almost Famous has 18 points. Stand By Me has 9 points, Lolita has 27 points, and Black Swan ends up with 33 points. 
So it does appear that Lolita and Black Swan, you know, as it turned out, had had the most points here by quite a bit. Mm -hmm. So the movie that I now have to remove from my film collection is the DVD deluxe edition of Stand By Me. Uh, it, it not only features the film and several documentaries, it also has the soundtrack to the movie. <laughs> so Sage Dent is my first guest at Stand By Me. What do you want me to do? Because I can no longer keep this in my movie collection. What do I do with it? I mean, honestly, donate it. Donate it, and do you have a specific place I should donate it? I mean... DVDs yeah. anymore. So I would so say Valley Village. Valley Village, I will I donate it to you. Yeah. yeah. And that is the first one removed. Thank you so much for doing this. So I say goodbye to my copy of Stand By Me. Thank you so much for tuning in to episode one of the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. Uh, please be sure to send me some feedback at my email, shelfsheddingmovieshow at gmail.com. Send a like to my Facebook page, the Shelf Shedding Movie Show. Uh, please recommend this podcast. I look forward to sharing more episodes with lots of listeners. I also want to recommend a terrific local podcast in Saskatoon called Rank and Review. Larry Parsons is an expert in horror movies, and each week he ranks six films. It is terrific. I love listening to every episode. I've been a guest on it many times. So if you love movie podcasts as much as I do, check out Rank and Review. Until next time, thank you so much. I appreciate you listening to this podcast.